0: a blessing to be here with you once again this week. I would invite you to take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We'll pick up where we left off from last week, looking at uh, today, the transfiguration of Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. Let us once again hear the word of God. And after six days, Jesus This ends the reading of the Word of God. Hughes Oliphant Old wrote concerning Christian worship: We worship God because God created us to worship Him. Worship is at the center of our existence, at the heart of our reason for being. When we think of any good catechism; they most most of them all start with the great question: What is the chief end of man? And we would answer to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we think about that statement, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That sounds like worship. And Paul gives us a means for how we are to do that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And the aim for this morning is that we as the redeemed of God, the people of Christ, with unveiled face would gaze upon the glory of Jesus that we see here in Mark's gospel. That we would see the Son in all of His glory. May it be true and may the Spirit illuminate the text to us as we would look through this passage. So let me call your attention here as we would notice in Mark chapter 9... Picking up in verse 2, the setting that Mark gives us. He tells us here that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Now he says here after six days because he wants to link the previous passage to this one. And if you think about this, We would go all the way back to the middle of chapter 8, really Peter's great confession in verse 27. And from Peter's great confession in 8.27 down to this event on top of this high mountain, this is a week. This is an incredible week in the life of the disciples. Peter makes the great confession, you are the Christ. Jesus recognizes the need to give some clarity to what that looks like. And so he tells them the cost of discipleship, what it means to be a follower of him. And so this revelation from understanding he's the Christ to misunderstandings really of what the gospel might be, Jesus provides clarity, and now we have this uh, miraculous scene before us. or What it would have been like to be a disciple for this week. And what we see before us here is Jesus' glory and identity revealed in a way that has not been revealed up until this point in all of the gospels. And so what we see in verses two through four is the Son's glory displayed. So these six days after this Jesus' teaching on his death and resurrection comes this transfiguration. And I want you to notice here that he brings three people of the twelve with him. It's Peter, James, and John. Familiar people that are familiar with the New Testament recognize that these are the inner circle of the disciples. Jesus had the twelve, and he had the three. We don't really need. we, We we all know who Peter is, the one who makes the great confession, and then there's James and John. These are the sons of thunder. These are the sons of Zebedee. Literally, when Jesus sees them in the boat with their father, he calls them to follow him. And it's as though they look at their father, Zebedee, and say, See you later. They jump out and they go after him, leaving their father in the boat. This is a detail that Mark records for us. And so we have Peter, who's kind of the spokesperson of the disciples, and James and John, who are the the sons of thunder. James is the first apostle to die. John's the last. And these three come together. And Jesus brings them up on a high mountain. Luke records that they go up there to pray. And here's the event before us. He says that he was, speaking of Christ, transfigured before them. Bobby and I were talking before the service, and this is not language that we use in our modern vernacular. But what does this word mean to be transfigured? I mean, literally, it's metamorpho, by which we get the word in our English language, a metamorphosis that takes place before their very eyes. This word is used only four times in the whole of, the, uh, of your New Testament, twice referring to Christ and twice referring to the followers of Christ or what would refer as what happens to us. I read it, Paul says it one time, beholding the glory of the Lord we are being transformed, that is the same word used here, Paul also will use it in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, talking about the moral transformation that we go through as we are beholding Christ through the renewing of our minds. So twice it's talking about our transformation in the Scriptures, and twice it's in reference to Jesus' transfiguration. And that's what we have before us right here. So Jesus being transfigured... What's being stated here is it's a radical transformation that the disciples are observing. But it is important to know Jesus is not becoming, in this moment, something different, something that he was not already. No, actually what we see here is as though Jesus is pulling back the veil of his humanity and he's revealing his divinity, his glory to the disciples, Peter, James, and John. His glory is veiled in humanity And it is, in this moment, it is as though it is lifted. As I was reflecting on them up on the mountain, I thought of the old Superman movies, maybe Christopher Reeves, when he would go into the the phone booth, and he's Clark Kent, but as he would pull off his jacket, he had the Superman uh, garb underneath, and he was revealing who he truly was, and Superman. And I thought, in this sense, it's as though Jesus is peeling back the layer of humanity and showing them His divinity and all of His glory. And so this is what we see here, the sun's glory. And it is first displayed, verse 3, in His appearance. Look again with me at verse 3. As He is transfigured before them, the first thing we see is a, His appearance. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them those are interesting details given by mark here what is being what is being stated before us radiance intensely white this is blazing purity this is the holiness of jesus white represents purity without blemish the perfect lamb of god his absolute holiness is being seen. Now remember, much of Mark's gospel comes through the preaching and teaching of Peter. The oral tradition that Peter might have been passing down. So it's hard to not hear Peter talking right here. It's as though Peter is speaking to Mark and telling him, Listen, I was on that mountain and his his clothes, his appearance became radiantly changed. I mean there's no bleach in the world that could even describe the nature of what I saw, Mark. His glory was literally out of this world. You should have been there, Mark, if you could have only have seen this. But that's not all. If his appearance was to, to totally rock us as we were up there, there was something else that came. You see, his glory in his appearance, then his glory is displayed in his associates. Look at verse 4 as peter's telling this story once again and there appeared to them elijah and moses and they were talking with jesus now we can become so familiar with this account this is peculiar this is this is this is this is a miracle of epic proportions that we see here Elijah and Moses appear, and they are communicating with Jesus. The disciples, the three, are observers of this, and they're seeing these three talk to each other. What was that conversation about? Well, actually, Luke records for us, they were talking about his soon departure to Jerusalem. So you have on top of this mountain, you have Jesus, Elijah, and Moses talking about the gospel. They are gospeling about the coming departure in Jerusalem. What's that? The suffering, death, and resurrection of the God-man. They knew what was to take place. What an interesting conversation to listen to. But how do we see the Son here in all of his glory with these two? And maybe we should ask the question, why these two? Why Elijah and Moses? Why not Abraham and David? Or Abel and Noah? Those would have been fine people as well. How about Samuel and Isaiah? What's so significant about these two? I would submit to you, it is because of who they represent. Moses. Moses represents the law. There was never anyone as close to God as Moses. He was a friend. He walked face to face with God. But Moses represents the law. Well, then who's Elijah? The prophets. In the presence of the law and the prophets, they bear witness to the glory of Jesus. Sometime after this, a few days after the resurrection or the day of the resurrection, the women go to the tomb, we recall, and they say, he's not here. And so some of these very ones that were up on that mountain, they run out to the tomb as well. And John beats Peter. He lets us know that. He makes it to the tomb first. And they see there that there is no, there's no Christ in the tomb. And they're bewildered by this. Sometime later, there's some disciples. They're unnamed. They're walking on a road to Emmaus. Some seven miles north of Jerusalem. And this peculiar figure comes alongside them as they're talking. And they're talking about the events that's taken place. And he says, well, what's happened? And these disciples are saying, where you been, man, through this week? Don't you know all the stuff that's gone on? This, this, there's, there's been a lot going on. Come to find out this figure that comes next to these two disciples walking, it's Jesus himself. It is the resurrected God-man. And on the day of his resurrection, walking on the road to Emmaus, I think if there was ever a walk in all the scriptures that I could take, it would be on this path. Hear what the resurrected Jesus says to these disciples. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And this is the cool part. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, Concerning himself. Moses and Elijah bear witness to the glory of the Son. They they have been pointing towards the coming of the Christ. What we can see here by these two figures with Jesus on the mountain. Is that the Son is glorified by the witness of the scriptures. Because it all points to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of every covenant, of every promise. We find it all yes and amen in Christ. Let me remind you what he says in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Moses writes of Jesus in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. A Jew, an Israelite, from among you, from among your own very rank. And he says, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. Moses says, it is to him you shall listen. What does the voice from the cloud say? This is my son. Listen to him. They bear witness to to his glory, the glory of the Son. Now imagine they're looking through the eyes of Peter, James, and John in this moment. They're astonished. This is this is breathtaking. Without words, there's fear, a holy reverence, but they're also, as it says, terrified. And you and I would be as well. We went up to a mountain to pray. And all of a sudden, the two greatest heads, I mean, they're standing at like the Mount Rushmore of the Bible in front of them. This is also why John would write too in his opening of his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, seen his glory. No doubt when he's writing this, his mind goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw his glory on that mountain as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They are eyewitnesses of the glory of the Son. And this we see here is the Son's glory displayed in His appearance and in His associates. But it goes on from there. It gets even greater, this mountaintop experience. Verses 5-8 through is the Son's identity is is declared so his glory is displayed and then his identity is declared but first we kind of have this peter moment and sometimes when a verse like verse 5 starts and says and peter said to jesus we sometimes just need to hold our breath <laughs> he hits home runs and he hits and he strikes out peter's a lot we're more like peter than maybe we even want to admit at times and peter said to jesus Rabbi it is good that we we are here now remember he's a fisherman, but in this moment he thinks he's a shelter builder he's a carpenter maybe he doesn't know what to do he's beside himself and he's saying let's stay for a while we can build three shelters well there's six people on the mountain he's not even thinking he's thinking, okay James, you build that one and John you build this one and I'll build this one we don't need one but Jesus and Elijah and Moses and and and, he, and he's literally the emotion is causing him to to speak. But it's like he doesn't even know what he's talking about. This is quite interesting. Have you ever been around somebody that maybe when they get nervous, they talk a lot? Maybe we are those people at times. We want to look at this passage and just say, Peter, shh. Take in this moment. Again, Peter—you can hear Peter just preaching, and Mark, and him retelling this moment to his listeners. I was there. It was—it was breathtaking, and I began to talk. And Matthew records that while Peter was still speaking, he's interrupted by a higher voice. No, it is—it is a—it is the voice from heaven. A more authoritative voice comes, interrupting Peter. And we see in verse 7, the son's identity is declared. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That same cloud, I know that you're working through Exodus, and that cloud that, that led the people of God out by day. That same cloud From that cloud, the voice of God the Father speaks and declares the identity of the Son. But I want you to notice here who he directs this statement to. At at Jesus' baptism, he speaks to Christ. But in this moment, he's talking to the disciples. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He's pointing to Christ, but he's communicating to the disciples. You have to understand here the mount of transfiguration is for, for for the disciples to see the glory of Jesus so that they would be eyewitnesses. And as they come down from the mountain, as eyewitnesses, they will create ear witnesses. And that's who we are. As they have passed on what they have seen and heard, so we do the same. We did not, we did not enter into this mountain, they did. But they are to create ear witnesses from what they saw. Think about it, they're already terrified. What about now? The voice of God is speaking and they are hearing him. They are hearing the very voice of God speaking to them in the presence of the Son of God while Moses and Elijah are there. I don't think we can overstate the magnitude of this event, of what is going on on top of this mountain. It is as though this might be the closest to heaven on earth in all of Scripture. Following here the identity that was declared by God, we also will see now the duty that is required. Look again at verse 7. He makes the statement, this is my beloved Son. Well, that comes with an action. Indicatives to imperatives. Because this is true, what then do we do with it? And this is what God says, He is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Hear the voice of Christ. Obey the voice of Christ. Submit to the voice of Christ. To listen is to obey. Jesus says at the end of His Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 7, Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them is a wise man. We are to hear the word of Christ. We are to do the word of Christ. So what is the purpose here of this whole event that takes place, that Mark records for us, that Peter, James, and John got to experience? I would say this. They were brought up that mountain to strengthen, confirm, and confirm their faith in Christ to build their trust, Peter, James, and John are to be strengthened as they follow Christ. They're getting all of this revelation. You are the Christ. This is what it means to follow. And they're like death, and they're and they're they're struggling with the implications of being followers of Christ. And then He brings them up there and says, "Listen, this is who I am, declared by the Father, declared by the the prophets and the law, that you might follow." Now, sometimes there's a danger of spiritualizing a text. We often talk maybe about mountaintop experiences in the Christian life. And I, and I want to be clear, there are times where we, where we do have heightened experiences with God throughout our lives. But never this. This is unique, and we must understand that. This is a one-time event here that occurred in time-space that is not to be repeated Not even all the disciples were invited to this event. And so while Peter, James, and John had this unique experience on top of the mountain, being present when the son's identity is declared, Peter would actually say, we have something greater than even this mountaintop experience. Reflecting on this, he says in his letter, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, here it is, eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And here's his point. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is Peter saying here? The word is confirmed. We have the prophetic word. So what are we to do? We too have the son's identity declared in his word. This revelation that was progressive for them as they were walking through time space is complete in the canon for us. We have it from start to finish. Oh, let us love the Word of God, the revelation of God, which shows us the Son of God. So, this is the Son's identity declared. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus will once again revisit his suffering. And we see the son's suffering disclosed. After this event takes place, we see after this declaration in verse 8, suddenly look around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The purpose for why they came was complete and so they are to come down off the mountain. Christian, we are to live, we're not to live on the mountain. We are to come down and oftentimes it is through mountains and valleys. That's the really the next passage as they go into the valley of unbelief. But for here they are coming down the mountain and Jesus has words for instruction to them. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They are to keep this. It's the secrecy motif throughout Mark. Now is not the time. This was for you, and it will eventually be for all who will hear, but not now. It's as though Jesus is saying, as it is stated in Hebrews chapter 2, that the Son must taste death first before this glory is to be revealed So what are they to do? Well, we see in the disciples that they first reveal their bewilderment of what has just taken place. Verse 10, so they keep this matter to themselves. They don't talk about it. They don't don't know how to process what has just gone on. Trying to get their bearings in mind of what just happened here. They're trying to put the order of events in place. and This is what you see in verses 11 through 13. They go to their eschatology. That's what ends up happening. They start questioning end times. How, how, how do the sequence of events take place and what do we see here? Everybody has questions about the end times, including the disciples. So they ask. They're, they're trying to figure out their confusion. And they're trying to put it all together. They ask in verse 11. Why did the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? Is that who we just saw on the mountain? Is, is now the fulfillment of this taking place? How do I get my sequence in order here? They're unsure. What does that mean that Elijah must come first? And Jesus responds to them, yes, Elijah must come first. Well, how does this play in? Well, the last prophet to write in our English New Testament, or English Old Testament is Malachi in our order. Do you know what the last two names that are given, proper names that are given at the end of Malachi? Moses and Elijah. And this what we're seeing is the fulfillment of what Malachi says at the end. In his final passage of of Malachi, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so the scribes are saying, We're waiting for Elijah. We're waiting for Elijah to come. That's where we've been left off with. And so the, the, the disciples are saying, We're waiting for Elijah to come, right? He must come first. A future promise. And Jesus says, It's been fulfilled. This has been fulfilled. I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. Well, who is this Elijah to come? It's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his path." Matthew, Matthew makes it clear that they understood he was talking about John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they pleased. What is it that they did? Herod and Herodias, whatever they pleased, they cut his head off. They killed him of whom the world was not worthy. Jesus says, those born among women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so what Jesus is saying is, Elijah has come. So what's next? It is the suffering of the Messiah, the suffering servant, the son's death and resurrection. And the point that Jesus is making here for them to understand is that the way to glory comes through death and resurrection. This, he once again discloses his suffering. So as we would think about this passage here and these verses, what do we make of it? What do we make of it in our own lives? How are we to think on the Son's glory, the declaration of the Son, and also his suffering? Well, our service this morning has been full of it, from opening until closing. Let me submit to you first from seeing this, that Jesus deserves our worship because he's worthy. That's what we see first and foremost here, is that Jesus deserves our worship, our submission, our lives, our obedience because he is the Son of God. Perfect in purity, the highest and greatest of all beings. The tendency is that we can even worship lesser creatures in our own lives. This is God, the uncreated one, standing before them on top of this mountain. Jesus deserves our worship because he is worthy. So we are to worship him. Psalm 2, kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you. We are to worship Jesus because to do anything less is to rob the son of God of the glory and the worship that is due to him. Here's a second thing we can see from this. Jesus deserves our obedience because of who he is. As he was declared the beloved son of God. Think about what Jesus requires. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And to obey Jesus is a delight. It's not drudgery. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. No, to obey Christ is to love Christ. And when we give Jesus the obedience that he deserves as the Son of God, who he is, we find ourselves living in harmony with the purpose for our creation. Our obedience to the law of God is not unto salvation, but it is the way in which God shows us this is the good life. This is what I desire of my creation. To obey Christ is to live in harmony with our created purpose. Friends, we were created to worship and to obey. But we do recognize, even as Christians, there remains the sin nature that, we, that rebels even against the thought of being created to obey. We must fight against the tendency of our own rebellious hearts at times. How do we do that? We must always be returning to the cross. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It's not do better. It's look to Christ. It's preach the gospel to yourself. It's to see the Son in all his glory. It is exactly how it was stated this morning, in reverse. Look to Christ, who kept the law perfectly, who loved his neighbor perfectly, imputed to us by faith. Let that drive us. That's the fuel in our gas tank. Third thing we would say of Christ is that he deserves our lives because he gave his life for us. There's nothing deep and profound. It is true. The Christian faith is one of reminders. Brothers to sisters, sisters to sisters, brothers to brothers, we come to remind ourselves who we are in Christ, what he's done for us. As he talked about his suffering, he deserves our lives because he gave his. In the son's suffering disclosed, he reveals that he was to die and to rise. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is my Monday morning motivation. Galatians 4, 5, and 6, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. How was this redemption accomplished? Through the cross. God the Father was pleased to cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So as we think about the Son and even his suffering disclosed, his life is offered for mine, for yours. He willingly laid down his life the one who spoke all worlds into existence, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, I will lay down my life for my sheep. That they might have eternal life, that they might know God, they might live in fellowship once and and for, for all time's sake. What more do we need to motivate our obedience, to inflame our hearts, in love in service in gratitude in thankfulness to Christ he died for me he died for you and sometimes when i look in the mirror i just see a poor wretched sinner prideful self-sufficient and i ask the question why me and maybe you wrestle with asking that question too why you because he set his love upon you from eternity past. There's a little, I'll close with this. Uh, a, a dear friend of mine gave me a little paperweight, has, a, has a, um, a quote from A.W. Pink on it. It sits right in front of my screens, and I'm reminded of it often. And Pink said this, quote, He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon me, End quote. So he deserves our lives. This is the Son in all of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have access by faith to you. Lord, we are thankful beyond measure for the forgiveness of sins, that was redemption accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we would even have a glimpse of his glory, even as we read it on these pages. We are thankful that you have called us to know you, to live with hope in this life and in the life to come. Oh Father, give us thankful hearts, motivate our obedience, deepen our worship, increase our love for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, let us now, we will sing a, song of response give to our God immortal praise number 3